Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is July 29, 2015. This is episode 1614 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we're going to take a look at what we could be looking at in the future of the United States with what I call nationwide riots. Now, nationwide, wi nationwide riots, kind of hard to say, does not mean... There are literally riots from sea to shining sea, coast to coast, every square foot of the nation. What I mean by that is, uh, imagine Baltimore, the riots in Baltimore, and the riots in Ferguson, um, which is really St. Louis. Imagine that those are going on at the same time in like Jacksonville, Florida, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, California, Seattle, Washington, uh, and throw another 20 cities in there are all going at the same time. And the, the riots go to the level of, let's say, what we had happen in L.A. with the Rodney King riots back uh, about 25 years ago, I guess it is now. Imagine that. that that's what I'm talking about. And, and what would fuel these riots? Would it be you know austerity like it's currently fueling riots in Greece and, and Spain right now? Or would it be uh, racial? Or, or would it be you know something else? And the answer is, I don't know, but race is a possible one. A very, very possible, and we're going to focus on that a little bit today, but more on the impact of what these riots would look like, what they would be like, and, and how they might go down. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you uh, by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today is Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. 
That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our Support Brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have three for you today from the awesome Alex Shrugged. I have, what do you have in the basket, Judith? A rape and a beheading. I also have, Virginia tobacco is the new crack and the new money. I also have, welcome to New Netherland. I'm going to read, Virginia tobacco is the new crack and the new money. King James I has been toying with the idea of banning tobacco as a vice, but now he's convinced that tobacco is the greatest substance in the world because now he can tax the hell out of it. It seems that the English and just about everyone else will pay any price to get their fix. The king of Spain, fearful the price might drop out of the market, begins funneling Spanish tobacco exclusively through the port of Seville. He is squeezing off the supply. Scarcity pushes the price sky high. Back in Jamestown, with an uneasy peace with the Indians in place, the new husband of Pocahontas, John Rolfe, is planting acres of tobacco. The Virginia product is inferior, but everyone is paying through the nose for it. If crack had existed at the time, tobacco would be the new crack and the new money. It is as good as gold. Pocahontas is rich. Now the poverty-stricken are gathering up discarded cigar butts, grinding up the tobacco, and wrapping the result in small papers. Mark the date on your calendar, folks. Cigarettes are born. My take by Alex Shrugged. The first cigarette vending machine is created around this time as well. I only saw a brief mention of it, but you dropped a coin in the kitty, opened the box, and took your smokes. Seemed to work on an honor system like an office snack rack. Just a warning now. The tobacco mania is going to touch off something really terrible. And the people won't realize they've done it until it's well and truly done. In a couple of years, during harvest time, a Dutch pirate ship will sail into the Virginia port and sell their ill-gotten goods and a few slaves. The farmers will want to get the harvest in. They need the labor and a 1,000% profit on tobacco. They won't think twice. They won't think twice. They're going to do the unthinkable. Yeah, and hence the genesis of slavery in the United States uh, is a result of agricultural... Um, profits, and there could be more profits through enslaving a people. I think to truly understand this, you have to go back to the time, though, and understand slavery was in place throughout most of the world at this point. 
I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying it's horrible, but that is the case. I don't think that the, the colonists thought twice about it because I don't think it was even on the mind of the average person that, you know, slavery was some kind of a, a bad thing. That was just the way it was. Some people were just meant for it. And there was a lot of lathering along the lines of religious fervor that stated, hey, look, it's in the Bible. It's got to be okay. Um, it is the darkest part of our past. And I'll save my thoughts there because as we look at the potential for riots in this country along the lines of a, a riled-up war along racial lines, we're going to have to look at that some anyway. So I'll leave it there. Before I get into today's subject, let me remind you real quick about the Member Support Brigade. The Member Support Brigade works like this. You go to the site, you click on Members, you sign up and you join. Fifty bucks a year or five bucks a month, you take your pick. Then you get discounts, the stuff you're probably buying anyway. From the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens and everything in between, you get all these great discounts, over 60 companies now. If you're buying stuff like is in there with the vendors anyway, then your membership more than pays for itself. It's actually profitable. You get more in discounts per year than you pay per year. That way you can support the show, I can keep doing what I do, and you actually get a return of your investment. So if you love what we do and you think it's worth 20 cents an episode, please consider joining today. It is how we really pay the bills around here. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, You do qualify for an additional discount if you email me with service discount in the subject line, TSPC uh, service discount in the subject line, and email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll send you that discount code. Everyone else, just click on members and you can sign up there. All right, with that, let's take a look at this concept. And this is something that I've become more and more concerned about over time. Um You've seen riots on TV. You've seen riots in Greece and Spain over austerity, which is you know, the, the fear or the actual cutting of benefits. People just go to the streets and start rioting because it's the only thing they know to do. Um, right here in the U.S., cities like Ferguson and Baltimore and, frankly, many others, Louisville, Kentucky, last year had riots that were just as bad as anything that you saw on the TV screen from Ferguson or Baltimore. Um, you see people looting, vandalizing, harming other people, setting fires worse. I don't think we're done yet, sadly. I think we're going to see massive riots. And I do think that the most likely case is they'll be racially motivated, at least at first. I, I realize that's something you're not supposed to say, but it's what I see coming. I think we live in a, in a society today that that's part of why we're going to see these racial riots. If I say there'll be racial riots, oh, you're a racist. <laughs> That would be like saying if I say um, some black people don't like white people. That makes me a racist. Or did a white cop might take out aggression on a black guy would make me racist. I'm observing the activity. I'm not condoning it. I'm not suggesting it's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not saying anything other than this is what I think is going to happen. And I think the first few riots we have are just the beginning. I think the people in power know what's coming, and I think they see it as inevitable. I might not go so far as to say that the, the people in power in this country want this to happen, but as they believe that it's going to happen, I believe they're already planning on how to use it for their own gains whenever it happens. And I think before we can go any deeper, we have to examine a couple of things. We have to examine, number one, what causes riots? And... 
it's really shortages of things. Like if, if people don't feel like they're going to eat or, or get what they have coming to them. Uh, it's also the feeling of hopelessness. In short, it's anger. And, and really, anger is the answer that for all riots as to what causes them. Now, sometimes the instigators that cause the riots aren't doing it because they're angry. They have very clear, uh, well-planned intentions. But the people getting fervored up and destroying and looting and smashing, regardless of, of what the cause of the riot is and who the people are, right? And I think one thing we better get our heads around is We see a lot of rioting from the black community in this country right now, but that's not because black people riot. That's because that's a group of people that feel this way, in, in large part for real reasons and in large part for trumped-up reasons, for both, as an excuse and as a reality. Because I don't know if you looked at Greece and Spain, but those weren't black people rioting there, was it? I mean, really. I don't know if you've looked at the London riots, but there weren't a lot of black people there. This is not a black thing, okay? This is not like black people riot. And and we need to be honest about that. So then we have to say, if that's the case, then why is it the case that the majority of rioting that's occurred in this country has come from the black community? And it, it's pretty obvious why. Because they're angry. They're angry. Now, you could say, well, they, they don't have a right to be angry, or you can say they do have a right to be angry, but this isn't the way to do it. But, again, this is one of those things that's, it's, it's, it's got to be so politically charged that nobody wants to talk about it. But one way or another, they're angry. You don't riot if you're not angry. And rage feeds rage like a fire. That's how riots work. And before we go any further, what we have to do is we have to examine what I call the 10% scumbag uh, theory. And the next 10 follow theory. These two work together. So the 10% scumbag theory crosses all racial lines. It crosses all professional lines. It crosses every occupation. It crosses every gender. It crosses everything. Every religion or lack thereof. It crosses every station in society. I believe that in general, that about 10% of our people in this world are literally scum. Why? I don't know. I don't pretend to be a neuroscientist, but I, I, I fundamentally believe that at least 10% of the population has some things wired in their brain wrong. Sometimes we would refer, refer to these people as sociopaths or psychopaths. I think that's one segment of that 10%. I think there's people that have a totally different problem. And again, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm not a PhD, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist. I don't claim to know what exactly is wrong, but in my opinion, in my observation of humanity, you could line up a thousand priests, 10% are scumbags. You could line up a, a thousand firefighters, 10% are going to be scumbags. You could line up a thousand people off the street, randomly selected, and about a hundred are scumbags. That's a lot of scumbags. This country has over 300, 300 million people. 300 million people, which means we have at least 3 million, minimum, 3 million complete scumbags in this country. And if we take the across-the-board, completely, fairly, you know, evenly divided theory, then you can break that down if you wanted to into how many people that are white are scumbags and black are scumbags and Hispanic are scumbags and Asians are scumbags. And I believe that that number is pretty consistent across humanity. Because I have seen the lowest forms of life 
in what we consider the most noble of professions, and I have seen the highest level of ethics and sacrifice among the people that we consider the lowest level of humanity. I've seen it on both extremes, on both ends. And I, I haven't traveled the whole world, but I've traveled enough of it to have a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about with this. And that 10%, so if you think about 300 million people, meaning 3 million scumbags in this country, that's a lot of scumbags, and you think, well, how are we as stable as we are? Scumbags are not immune to fear. They fear incarceration. They fear reprisal, right? They do run risk-reward analysis in their heads. And the scumbag that will rape, and that happens to do what he manifests his scumbaggery, will figure out how can I get away with this. The scumbag that molests a child will do the same thing. The scumbag that will steal the stuff from your home or just burn it down because he doesn't like you will run analysis and will only act as scummy as he thinks he can act and get away with it. When the security falters, when it becomes a situation where that person feels they can get away with what they're going to do openly, they will act openly when they do it. And then there's what I call the 10% follow theory. So I think... It's not just 10% of society that is predispositioned to do a lot of these things. I think there's a whole other 10% that are people that generally wouldn't do it, but enough people around them are doing it, they are weak enough to go with the flow and participate. And this is when you see 10 guys smashing a car into pieces and setting it on fire, and there's a whole crowd of people standing around watching them that aren't necessarily engaging in the activity, but they're videoing it on their phones and they're giving people the finger and they're smiling and they're happy and they're cheering. That's the other 10%. Okay, that's 6 million people. They will either stand by and do nothing, tacitly participate, fully participate, or instigate this type of behavior. Just on that number alone. And I believe that number is very very solid. So let's talk now about how riots begin and how they grow. And like I said earlier, it's like a fire. So riots generally begin with some source of agitation, some source of anger. They're almost always instigated by a small group of people that want them to happen. They see, can I get this going? Just like an arsonist. Okay? Now, it, what it always comes down to, an arsonist, if you give an arsonist a pint of gasoline, and a pack of matches, you'd think he could start a fire, okay? And a bad one at that. That's all you need to do it, a little bit. Well, if you go to a dry forest, you can start a fire with that. You go to a run-down part of the city, you can start a fire with that. If you put them out in the middle of a sand desert, right? Not a scrub desert where there's some stuff. Just like when you, know, you see on TV where the guys are walking through the desert, it's just sand, and say, start a fire. Can't do it. Why? You've got some fuel, and you've got a spark, but you don't have enough fuel to maintain the burn. For the riot to grab hold and start to grow, there has to be enough feverence, enough anger, enough loathing, enough hatred. There has to be a body count of people willing to at least tacitly participate. See, and the people that go to legitimately protest when there's going to be a riot, not they cause a riot, when there's going to be one anyway, they lend to the body count 
And they make the people that act first feel comfortable. The larger the crowd, the more comfortable someone is with knocking a window out of a car. Once the window's knocked out of a car, all of a sudden a couple guys start rocking the car. A couple guys start rocking the car, another guy helps, next thing you know the car goes on its side. Now somebody throws some fire and it starts burning, they have a party around it. A lot of the people that are there that don't intend to do any physical harm to anybody or anything, all of a sudden, at least, hey, this is kind of cool that this is going on. We're making our point. Now, you're not making your point. But people in this environment stop behaving normal. They start behaving like violent criminals. And they become violent criminals, even if they're not normally in their life. And the 10% inside there, those people use this as an excuse to behave the way they want to behave all the time. And this begins to grow. And it begins to spread. And all of a sudden, it's not just the instigators. It's not just the arsonists that have instigated, that have started the social media campaign, that have, that have, that have added to the anger, that have misrepresented, even if, the, even if the people that are angry have a right to be angry. You know it, you've seen it in all of these cases. There's people that instigate for more violence Again, I call these the, the riot arsonists, right? And when I say arsonists, I don't mean they set fires. I mean they cause the fire of the riot itself to grow and to start. And they enhance whatever the society or people in power or whatever have done wrong with lies and exaggeration. And they get it going more. And then it starts rolling. And all of a sudden there are people that have never broken the law in their lives, picking up a rock or a brick, or beating somebody down. And a mob mentality takes over. And then, when authority comes in to stop the riot, the rage transfers from the inanimate objects, the cars, the trucks, the car windows, and, and, and the few stragglers that are there that you single out as not being part of your group, and translends to authority. And then it becomes a battle between the rioter and the law enforcer. And if it happens to be law enforcement that they were angry at in the first place, this really gets out of hand. And either authority cracks down on this immediately, boots on the throat, round up the instigators, clear out the streets, and, and crack down on it as soon as the first rock goes through a window, or it turns into a full-scale riot. Now, you know me, I'm not for the state exerting authority and, and force on people. But if you don't want to riot, in that case, once that's going on, that is the only way to cut it off. It's like a forest fire. I'm not for driving a truck around and spraying water in the air for no good reason. But if you've got a small blaze going in a forest where it's dry, you push fire breaks and put it out or the whole forest goes up. That's how riots work. Now, the problem is, because people are angry and resentment is feathered up, that, that attempt to extinguish the flame can sometimes, like, think of it as like causing sparks to fly. And those sparks get caught in an updraft, and then in an air current, and they, they, they move over, and they start a different fire somewhere else, and a different fire somewhere else. And that's my big concern here in the United States, specifically along racial lines. So if we look at the racial fuel here in the United States, first of all, remember the 10%. All right? If 10% of white people are scum and 10% of black people are scum and 10% of, of, of if, if we dyed people green, 
We took 20 different races, put them together, and gave, tattooed them green from head to toe. 10% of those green people would be scum. It's just the way it works. If you run that number, before, by the way, before I say this, I realized I made a mistake. When I said there were you know, 3 million people in the United States that were scum on the 10% theory, that's 1%. It's 30 million. It's 30 million. All across all racial and demographic lines. 30 million people are scum in this country. That bother you? You know, does that mean I'm talking about you? Because I say 30 million people are scum? Does that mean there's 270 million odd that aren't? Are you part of that 270 or the 30? All right? Uh, it's important that we, we, we say that now before anybody takes it all about to say it the wrong way. There's about 41 million black people in America. If we apply the same number, that's 4 million black people that are scum. Okay? That's 36 million that aren't. But it's 4 million that aren't. And it's 30 million total. Which is, means there's more non-black scum than there is black scum. Got it? This is not about blacks in general. This is about a racial divide that has been set up that is one of the easiest places right now for an arsonist, a, a arsonist in this country, to ignite a riot. I know I'm upsetting some people right now. Again, I'm analyzing this. I'm not saying it's anybody's individual fault. I'm not singling out any group of people. I'm saying it's already been done. Other people have already done this. And other people are already firing this up. So let's take it down to 1%. Then I got 400,000. Okay? Let's cut that number in half again. A half a percent of the population. A half a percent is still 200,000. How many people do I need to do this? How many people do I really need in a city committed to seeing that city burn to start a riot? A hundred? A thousand? Let's say it's a thousand. So if I need a thousand people in any given city and I wanted to get 100 cities burning, I need 100,000 people. My point is, I have more than enough on both sides, based on a 10% theory, based on the 1% theory, based on the half percent theory. I have plenty of people to do this with. With a half percent of the population, I can ignite this type of a war in our country. And what will happen is many of the people that would call for peace and rationality right now will slowly begin to get sucked into it if it gets big enough. You might say, I will never hold the color of another man's skin against them. And that's who I try to be today. And I'll be God, I'll be God honest with you guys, okay? You know, as, as honest as I could be. I grew up in a racist family. I did. It was a hard thing to let go of. And a big part of it was the army. Serving alongside people where it didn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter where your color was. It didn't matter where you grew up. What mattered was you had a common goal. Getting out of a small, hick town in the north, by the way, right, is what got me past that. But I can tell you because I've been there and I've been on the other side of it, a lot of what causes it is if you're, if, if someone does harm to you, because you're white, and they happen to be black, it starts to give you a negative impression of black people. Because I grew up in two places, the rural Pennsylvania part I'm talking about now. I also grew up as a younger kid in Jacksonville, Florida, 
where racism was alive and well on both sides. And part of what made me susceptible to what my parents taught me is that I'll be, I'll, I'll tell you another thing. You were a lot safer if you were a black kid in a school in Jacksonville, Florida, dealing with a group of white kids than if you were a white kid dealing with a group of black kids. Again, you can say that's racist if you want to. That's just the way that it was. It's just the way that it was. There is an immediate ability on these lines to go them and us on either side. And there is no doubt that the way our government has handled things and the way law enforcement has handled things, that black people have been discriminated against in this country. Now, that's not white privilege. That's a statement of fact. And if we won't acknowledge that, then this stuff is absolutely going to happen. This has to be acknowledged. It has to be acknowledged that the people on the other side of saying they've been victimized and attacked are not 100% wrong. They're also not 100% right. But if you can't acknowledge that, if you can't acknowledge that law enforcement, by and large, handles things differently when the guy behind the wheel is a black guy than a white guy, then we can't fix this problem. Then this is absolutely unavoidable. This, this is inevitable if we can't get that far and start to figure out how to fix that problem for both sides. So there are legitimate abuses of minority communities in this country. But on top of it, there is also a message from the people in power to those people in those minority communities that you are a victim. You are a victim. You are a victim. Every other word out of the mouth of everybody in power is, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim. Instead of, you know what, get your shit together. If you live in a place that's crime-ridden crap hole, make your life better and get the hell out of there. Fix your life. Yes, sometimes your, your group has been victimized, but you don't have to be a victim. Instead of that message, we have multi-generational Systems that are designed to keep people in these poor communities, black, white, otherwise, in poverty, cemented in poverty. The difference is in the two communities that the majority of white people that live in poverty in this country live dispersed out. They're, they're, they're not tightly packed into places. They're more in the rural communities or the edges of the suburbs where the majority of the black people living in poverty are living in tight-packed, dense urban areas, inner-city areas. And because of that, it's a lot more obvious to them that how many other people just like them there are. I, again, I know people will take that as being racist. It's not racist. It's an observation. Trust me, there's a lot of places that, you know, there's a lot of scummy white people in or Hispanic people in or whatever. Again, this 10% theory, I believe, goes across the board. And when you put a person in that position, uh, the 10% are in the poverty, it gets worse. It gets much worse because they start having an excuse. And that's what this mantra of you're a victim is, has led to an excuse. And a white man did it. It's all my fault. It's all your fault if you're a white man, too. When it's bad to be white. It's even worse to be a white male. And if you're a white, successful male, well, tuh, unless you're a Democratic politician, then you're okay. That is the mantra. That if you tell people something long enough, they start believing it, sure or not. 
And frankly, in our nation, we now live in a place where you have to blame somebody. I mean, just take about everything we've talked about up till now off the table and just think about anybody in any situation and ask yourself, does anybody stand up anymore and go, this is my fault, this is my fault, my family's fault, my team's fault, whatever. We did this, it's up to us to fix it. I mean... For all the flaws this country had, even back in the 1970s, when I was in Florida, as this little kid that I talked about, there was that. That's gone. We're, we're, we're bound for hell in this country. Right here, right? Not some metaphorical hell, right? Right here, this nation is bound for hell. If we don't get a hold of this and start saying, I am more responsible for my life than anybody else. No matter who's done wrong to me, I'm responsible more for what I choose to do from this minute forward, and no one does it. White, black, green, purple, yellow, doesn't matter. No one does it. Politicians don't do it. Leaders don't do it. Team uh, sports people don't do it. Individuals don't do it. Who the hell does? Who the hell stands up anymore and says, I'm sorry, I was wrong? It's my fault. Who stands up anymore and says, I'm sorry that I did this? When you even see someone in the public light that apologizes, I'm sorry that people felt hurt. Bullshit! Bullshit! How about you're sorry you screwed up? How about you're sorry you did the wrong thing? We don't do that anymore. So, we literally have created a culture where everybody blames somebody else for everything. Except for the other 10%, the 10% on the other end of the spectrum. The people that are stand-up people. See, and I think that 10% goes across every social divide, every racial divide as well. I think 10% of blacks, 10% of whites, 10% of priests, 10% of farmers, 10% of law enforcement officers, 10% of even politicians are the finest people on the planet and will do everything they can to help others, and will always stand up and say, it's my fault. But which which one of those percentages are we cultivating right now? Which one are we growing? Which, which wolf are we feeding? Let me tell you that little story real quick, and, and let that put some perspective in for you. This is supposedly a, uh, a Native American thing. Supposedly, anyway. Um, again, you know, I always question some of these things, but this is good nonetheless. One evening, and, uh, a, a tribal chief told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, my son, the battle is between two wolves inside all of us. One is evil. It is anger, jealousy, sorrow, regret, and greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, security, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? The Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. So that's a great lesson for us individually. Which wolf are you feeding? And when it comes to your children, your children have these two wolves inside of them as well. Which one are you feeding in them? And I think most of the people who listen to this show, regardless of your color, your race, your religion, your origin, whatever, 
feed the good wolf. It's part of what you're doing. It's part of why you care. It's part of why you even care about surviving and doing good things in the world. And a lot of other people are feeding their evil wolf. But as a society, which wolf are we feeding in the hearts and souls of our people? We've been feeding the evil wolf for quite a long time here. We really have. Because the evil wolf is what makes people irrational. And when people are irrational, we can control them. And the people in power have seen to it that we feed the worst parts of ourselves to create divide. And in that blame, in that blame, it's really easy to take two groups of people that can clearly visibly identify each other and drive the wedge right there. And that's why I think this is the most likely place for this to erupt. But it's not the only place. There's there's other places. But if I'm an arsonist and I want to start a fire and burn down a city, I'm going to go where there's old buildings that are really dry and made out of wood. Even if I want the metal glass buildings to eventually be affected by the fire, I know where I need to go to start the fire. I don't need to go to a place made with metal and glass with the most advanced fire suppression. I look for the place where there's tinder and kindling and fuel. And that's where I strike. And that's the thing about these riots. That's why we had to talk so much about how they start. It's not organic. They're not like the forest fire that started by a lightning bolt. It just happens. They're the forest fire that somebody goes out with malice and intent and figures out the best place to set the flame because they want to see it burn. That's how the majority's riots occur. There's an instigator or a group of instigators. There's an arsonist. And if you're looking for the easiest place to do it in this country right now, that's it. That's it. Another place it could be done on racial lines is along illegal immigration. That's another place. Uh, dividing that line. And, and see, it won't even be illegal immigration. It'll be racial again. It'll be Hispanic if you do that. Though I think it's less likely. I don't think it's unlikely. I think it's less likely. I think the biggest place to make this happen today is the black-white divide. It's not about black people. It's not about white people. It's about a dynamic that's been set up in this country. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Let's look at what would nationwide riots look like. The big thing would be you'd have supply lines closed. Major supply lines closed. So major interruption of services and goods. I want you to think about another way to look at population. There's over 30 million people that live just in the top 20 United States cities. That's about 10% of our population. Now, the, the, the scumbags are distributed pretty evenly throughout society. So that's not like all the scumbags live in the cities, right? But my bigger point is how many people, how many people, if the 20 largest U.S. cities go into riots, are directly affected. Not indirectly, directly affected. It's at least 30 million. Because th that, those population numbers that I've garnered for you are not all the people that would say they're from Chicago or from New York or whatever. They're all the people that live within the defined geographic boundaries of the city. Okay? If that makes sense, right? So I technically live in Fort Worth, Texas. I mean, that would be the best answer I could give you. So where do you live? Fort Worth, sort of, Azle, sort of, right? But I, I don't live in Fort Worth city limits, and I don't live in Azle city limits. 
And there's a whole bunch of people just down the road from me. If you said, where do you live? They'd say Fort Worth. They actually live in little towns like Lakeside. But they know you didn't know where that is. And they are don't think they are not affected in Fort Worth riots. And the closer you get to Fort Worth, the further away from me, the more. So there's millions of people in his, these belts that are outside there. Another way to understand that is to say, well, what is the population density of this country like? In the top 10 states for population, over 170 million people live. That's more than half our population live in just 10 states. Let me tell you some states that are not that didn't make that cut. New Jersey didn't make that cut. Maryland didn't make that cut. Now, you think there's some high-density populations and potential for riots in places like New Jersey? Maryland? Like Baltimore? I'm just saying, right? So even the states that didn't make that cut still have these really high-density populations. My point is, because this nation lives with the majority of its people in high-density urban areas and suburban belts... If we had riots in 20 cities or 25 cities, the majority of our people will be directly affected and directly at risk. So that's just, you know, that's half the people for the top 20, 25 cities. And that's completely within the realm of possibilities here. The economic fallout would be massive in of itself. There, there's big economic fallout from Baltimore and Ferguson. But imagine a supply chain disruption across the United States in every supply that feeds our gross national product. So huge disruptions to the supply chain, huge disruptions to the overall economic output and economic activity of this country. In these top 20 cities, we have cities that are major ports of call. That means major ports where all of the stuff that comes to this country from other countries comes in through. These are cities like L.A., Seattle, Jacksonville, Florida, San Diego. Now, not in that list of top 20 cities is New Orleans, Louisiana. But you don't think that's a hotbed potential for riots? Come on. That is the fifth largest port of call in the United States. Fifth largest. Tremendous port of call in Jacksonville, Florida. People have no idea... No idea how much comes into this country through Jacksonville, Florida. So if you have riots in these cities, and you can't have commerce move through these cities, and you clog up, even if the riots aren't at the ports, the stuff has to get from the port to distribution models that go through the city where it comes in and out of those cities into other cities. The spillover would affect the larger urban areas, there's no doubt. You start to see side fighting and infighting. Martial law will be declared if this happens. And the people most imposed for, opposed to it right now will beg for it if it occurs. They'll ask for it. You right now that are saying, I will never submit to the martial law, be like, they got to do it, man. As soon as, as soon as the house is three streets away from you, have smoke coming out of the roof. It'll get very real very, very fast if this goes down. Because the local and state police departments cannot stop this. They can't do it. They, they absolutely don't have the manpower and the equipment necessary. Now, there's been a lot to do to militarize them. But they can't do it because you can't just start killing everybody. It won't go down that way. They can't do it. 
They have to put in such a show of force that the people rioting begin to collapse in upon themselves. They basically, it's a siege mentality. You lock the streets down, you round everybody up you can, and where the hotbed of the rioting's going on, you surround them, you hold them in, and eventually they start to run out of food and supplies, and they just want to go home. You try to get as many of the instigators as you can as the whole thing falls apart. They're not going to just roll in and start mowing people down with machine guns. They can't do that. They don't do it in Russia. They ain't going to do it here. So you need a tremendous body count. So what does that mean? National Guard troops called up by governors of these various states. Some governors holding off longer than others and wishing the hell they didn't down the road. The major cities of this, of this country on fire, burning, panic. Now, I don't. I think that the people in power think this is inevitable. I don't think that it's inevitable. We'll get to more of that at the end. But I think it's very possible. And I'm not saying this is going to happen tomorrow. There's a reason that I waited to do this show until all of the, the riots coverage in the news calmed down. I didn't want to be part of the arson. I don't want to fan that flame. But I do want to be honest with you about one of the things we need to be prepared for. The larger danger is also something we have to look at. If you have this going on in five, ten cities, let alone 2025. But you think it's totally possible. Trust me, a lot of the reasons they didn't crack down as quickly as they should in L.A. over the Rodney King thing is they were deathly afraid that other cities were going to start, specifically for some reason Atlanta was going to be next. That once that went, it could be like power. Like the thing I'm describing, they were afraid of. And that's why that fire was allowed to get out of control. But... If you get it that big, then you start having random attacks. And we're seeing this now. We're seeing people attacked on the street, beaten up, people's property destroyed over this, this Confederate flag bullshit. And we're seeing it go both ways. Right? This isn't a one-way problem. This is a two-way problem in all of these things. You're going to see another thing happen if this goes on. Because everybody's pushed to the breaking point, where do all the police, where do all the law enforcement go? Where the problem is. What does that do? It takes the suburban belt and it takes law enforcement out of there and a lot of other petty theft and assault and burglary and all these other things that happen anyway happen at higher frequency because the scumbags know they can get away with it. Hey, when, when you know, when the cat's away, the mice play. Well, the cat is going to be downtown trying to keep the city from burning the ground and the rats are going to play, not the mice. So you've got that problem as well you're going to see people prosecuted for self-defense. We've already seen this. Everything I'm saying we're going to see, you're just going to see so much more of it if this goes on. There was one guy who was being uh, threatened by a group of people. He had an AK-47. This was somewhere in New York. He fired warning shots. He didn't want to kill him. Well, he, he brandished a gun. He said, you guys got to get the, get the hell out of here. All right? He's the F word, actually. They kept coming at him. And instead of killing him, He fired the weapon to into the ground to make them understand, I will kill you if you make me. They charged this guy with a felony, wrongful discharge. They said if you didn't have to kill him, you didn't have to shoot. I think they convicted this guy too. I don't remember, so don't quote me on that. But you're going to see people rioting, spilling out into the suburbs if this happens. Not when this happens, if this happens. And some guy saying, stay off my property, and a crowd come in, and he's going to lay a couple of them out. And they'll prosecute him. You didn't need to kill him. They weren't hurting you yet. 
We needed to give them room to destroy. And you'll see other people not prosecuted for self-defense. And you'll see a lot of profiling happen with that. I'll leave that at that as well. And you will see reprisal by those that are being attacked. If it goes on long enough, bad enough, you'll start to see people start to band together, form their own gangs, posses, whatever you want to call them, and start taking action in return. And then it's then it is so close to be in nationwide war, it's scary as shit. But I think they do have the, 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 the hardware and the wherewithal to put it down. But then how long does that aftermath last? Think of it this way. In the Balkan region, when that war erupted, it was on religious lines. Because it was the most clear divide. That's all this is. And there's still people afraid in that region 20 some odd years later about reprisal from what, what happened during that war. It doesn't matter that the divide here happens to be black and white. That just happens to be the divide. These divides have existed in every civilization that's ever existed. And as long as we can find an identifier, we can drive a wedge, the people in power use that wedge for as long as possible to control you, but eventually, eventually, the continuous driving of that wedge leads to violence. That's the path that we're on. And But, see, here's the thing. As bad as that all would be, I believe it would be mopped up a bit quicker than most of the pessimists would think. But the bigger losses come in the aftermath. What was the greatest attack on our liberty? 9-11? Or everything our own government did in response to it? Think about that. Did the terrorists win because they brought down a couple towers? Whatever you think about that. okay? I know there's a lot of different theories there. Mine's somewhere in the middle between the official story and the radical uh, conspiracy theory. But imagine that the, the, the official story were true. 100% true. I know it's hard for some of you. Just imagine it were. Again, I don't believe it either, but imagine that it was. Imagine that 19 guys took down four aircraft, flew one into the Pentagon, and brought down two icons of American industry. It killed over 3,000 people. Has the greatest attack on our liberty occurred on that day, or the nearly 15 years after it, where our own government spies on our Aunt Edna's and our grandmother's emails now? What was the greatest attack on our liberty? Our own government attacking us. That's that's the greater loss of liberty came in the aftermath. Not in the week after, in the decade after. Now, why? Because our government wants total control. They want complete and total control. They want to be able to manage every part of our society's lives. That's what governments want. Every government wants that because what government inherently leads people to believe is people cannot take care of themselves. They can't make their own decisions. They don't know what we know. We know better. We want control. So that leads us to no good crisis going to waste. Now, something like a stock market crash is a crisis you can't let go to waste. What do you think a riot in 20, 25 cities is? It's a huge opportunity for all these things governments want. There will be people shooting each other if this happens. 
where it's a guy defending his home or his store or someone out murdering a bunch of people, being shot down by vigilantes, one way or another, if this happens, you are going to see people shooting and killing each other, and some justified and some unjustified. Well, regardless if it's justified or not, you're going to hear all kinds of things. We can't let this happen again. Look what happens when people like this have guns. Look what they do when they're given the opportunity. That's what you'll hear. And it won't just be guns. It'll be all types of weapons that need to be restricted. And what they'll say first is, well, we need to restrict them in these urban areas. These, these, what they'll have is like checkpoints. You, you know, you can have your gun for hunting deer or whatever, you know, but you don't bring your gun on an airplane. Well, you can't bring your gun in a city. There's already cities that are like that to a degree, but you'll see more and more of it. Checkpoints getting in and out of certain parts of cities. No guns. And then it just spreads from there. Restrictions on the right to protest. Hey, you know, if protests aren't well organized and controlled and permitted and taxed, look what happens. Never again. That's what you'll hear. We can't ever have this happen ever again. So we'll start having restrictions on our right to protest. A, a, a greater war on so-called hate speech and symbols. We already see this. You, you can't say certain things. You can't have a flag that looks a certain way, whatever. It makes you a racist. It makes you this. But never again. So, ramped up. Political correctness on steroids. This all results in an enlargement of the police state. Much larger police state. We need more cameras, more monitoring. We need more monitoring of social media. Hey, all of this was coordinated through social media. We could have stopped this. Well, they could have stopped it, but they didn't. But they'll say they could have stopped it. They didn't have the tools, the necessary... To see these FISA warrants and all. This is domestic terrorism. This is domestic terrorism. It's a threat to the security and safety and liberty of the whole country. This is terrorism. We have to stop it. Never again. The blame game. The Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. On and on and on and on it goes, guys. No end to the blame game. The blame game will run for 50 years after this happens if this goes down. In essence, divide and conquer. This will be the greatest divide and conquer tool least people have ever had or ever been given, as though we need to be divided any further to be conquered. We've been conquered long ago, and we've been divided for so long. But every time we're really tested in this country, that 10% on the other side, that 10% that does admit when it's their fault, that 10% that will lay down their lives to defend another, that 10%, that, that, that best of group in every demographic, in every profession, starts to pull. And I believe that pull of good is stronger than the pull of the bad. And, and they begin to help society coalesce. They, the, the people in power can't have that. What, what they fear is standing up one day and saying, hey, look at these people in the inner city, and, and, and the, the, the white suburbanite goes, yeah, so what? So? I wish those people well. I'll do what I can to help them. I don't fear them. Or, or telling a group of urban and black youth, hey, look at those rich white people over there. And they go, yeah, I want to be like that one day. I'm working real hard to become just like that. I want to be successful too. I mean, that's what they're afraid of. So they want us divided. Well, this is just like, like a godsend to the people that are afraid that we one day will put these differences behind us and move forward. So that leads us to, well, is this all inevitable? 
And my answer is, I don't know. You guys, if you've listened to the show for a long time, know I have a lot of strong opinions on a lot of things, and I generally have a pretty good feeling about what is or isn't going to happen, and a pretty good track record of calling it. This one, I don't know. Because the question comes down to, this truly is a battle between good and evil. This is, uh, uh, and, and at this point, we have to stop looking for the st to the state for a solution, because they don't have one. They don't really care. The people in power really don't care. If this happens, eh, we'll use it. If it doesn't happen, eh, we'll use something else. They're just a bunch of pawns on a chessboard. They're sacrificial. I don't give a shit. As long as, I, as long as I continue to be one of the wealthiest people in the world, what the hell do I care? I mean, that's how they really view this. So, we have to, so it's, it's the good and evil among us, not them. Who will prevail? And life's not like the movies, guys. The good guy doesn't always win. The guy in the white hat doesn't always ride away into the sunset with the girl at the end of the movie. It's not how the world works. Sometimes evil wins. Sometimes evil wins. And if we have 20 cities, 25 cities burning, with people killing each other because of their skin color, for a time anyway, evil is won. That is a victory for evil. And it could happen. But no, I don't believe it's inevitable. I don't believe that it can't be pushed off. I don't believe for a minute that there aren't more good white people than bad white people. I don't believe that there aren't more good black people than bad black people. I don't believe that there aren't more good people than bad people. But I believe that the bad people are more, more capable in the dynamics of the world of doing harm than most of the good people are willing to do to do well, to do good. Right now, anyway. So will those of us that are the peacemakers prevail? I don't know. And I know there's people on both sides that feel it is inevitable. And there's a lot of people that feel like, we got it coming. It's time to do it. It's time to make it happen. It's time to end this shit. If they want it, let's, let's have it. And both sides think they'll win. No one wins this war. And that's what this will be. If this happens, this will be a war. It'll be fought like a war. It'll be the worst of wars. Because the human is the original weapon of mass destruction. The human being is. You don't need nuclear bombs or chemical weapons to be a massive destructive force. All you need to be is human and have the human brain turned to evil. So I could do entire episodes on the things that are necessary for us to avoid this inevitable reality. But I'm running out of time today. So here's what I have to tell you. While I don't think it's inevitable, I think it's possible. And that which is possible should be prepared for. So here's what I think you need to do for your own protection. Number one, you need to be in some level of in touch with your local law enforcement, sheriff's department, local PD, whatever. You need people that will tell you what they know if things are starting to go sideways. And they will know when they start to go sideways long before the TV says so. You need to be paying attention to chatter with a police scanner or a scanner app or something like that in your general community on an ongoing basis. Just once in a while. A couple times a day, just kind of checking in to see what's going on. Some some local PDs have like online now where you can go online and see all the police activity. Arlington, Texas does. When we lived down there, we would check that out all the time. 
You just go online and look, and they show all the current active calls and the status and what's going on. Those are the things you need to do. The closer you live to a city, the more you need to have a plan to eventually say, as much as I want to stay and defend my home, it's not worth it, I'm leaving. And I know the survivalist mentality is strong in our community, and I will stay here, I will pick up my guns, I will do no harm to anybody, but if you come here and take what I have, I will lay you flat out. I know that is in you, because it's in me. I mean, that's how I feel. And in many instances, it's the course I would take. You can do whatever you want until you mess with me or my neighbors, and then it's on bitches. But you are not, you have to think about the result. If your home's burned to the ground, that's what insurance is for. It's wrong, it's evil, it's a horrible loss. I don't wish it on anybody, but in the end, that's what insurance is for. And I would rather build, rebuild my life with fire insurance, okay, than I would try to, want to try to rebuild my life from behind the bars of a penitentiary, which is a place you may end up if you take that stance. There may come a time where you have to, where you have no choice. But imagine this scenario. This is what people think. There'll be this big riot, people coming down the streets, whatever. You shoot the leader in the head. Everybody leaves. You really think so? You really think so? I mean, what you need is a neighborhood banded together. You've seen the signs after hurricanes and stuff. 20, 30 friggin' rednecks with guns. You loot, we shoot. Usually that is enough to defer and cause avoidance. But the closer you live, the less likely that is to be. So the closer you are in, the more you need to have a plan to bug out, which you should have anyway, because... You know, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, they also are reasons you might have to bug out. They're, they're, they're illnesses, pandemic, that's not to you yet, but clearly headed your way. There's times getting out of the way makes sense. You also have to have a good, solid bug-in plan. The bug-in plan is the most important plan you need for this. For most of us, we do not live in the streets where these types of things actually happen. The spillover into the suburbs, etc., will be limited. And it will be more like one-off type things. It will not be whole-scale rioting. The safest course of action for most people is going to be for a month or more to hunker down, live off of what you have, go out as little as possible, coordinate with your neighbors, coordinate with what's left of local law enforcement, and wait this thing out if it happens. It's going to be the most sane, rational thing that you can do. It's going to be the only way, no matter how well your intentions are, you're not going to be part of the, one of the groups pouring gasoline onto the fire. So the bug implant has to be important, which means all your basic preps, food, water, energy, medical, health, etc. It means that if you live in a city that's particularly vulnerable to this and you work where this would be a problem, or you'd have to cross the problem to get to work, this is the time now to start talking to your boss about, hey, look, if something did go sideways in this town, don't you think it would make sense if we had ways for our people to work remotely so that the company's operations could continue, but nobody's life had to be at risk? And when I tell you, well, it can't happen here, just put the TV in front of them and go, here, look, see this? See this? This is what happens when people go nuts. There's a lot of different reasons people could go nuts. Uh, a few years ago, I remember seeing a video, it was somewhere in Atlanta, that people's food cards didn't get recharged 
because of a government holiday on a Monday or something like that. And Tuesday, when they were supposed to be recharged, because it was supposed to happen on Monday, it didn't happen on Tuesday, and there was a damn near a riot there. And they were people were they were no, they were there on the Monday, the day they were closed. There was nobody in the building, and they were there demanding that something be put on their food cards. And they damn near pulled the wall off of the building, and the only guy in there was probably a janitor. Now, guys, if that can send you to the precipice of violence, no money on your food card for an extra day, how many other things could cause this to happen? Right? That wasn't racially motivated. That's just the way it happened. We've been close to this a bunch of times already. So this is time for a logical thought process. And if you run a company or you're managing a company, for a variety of reasons, you need a plan to keep the central operations running if people can't get to work, if it's possible. If you're a supermarket, that's not going to happen. Okay? You need to be tied into your neighbors. You need to have agreements with your neighbors. You don't need to get, like some neighbors, you can talk to right away and you realize, hey, they're, they're kind of switched on with this stuff. I can tell them about Jack's show, and it'll just take it from there, right? But there's some neighbors, you can't really go deep with them about this, but you just need to know them. What's their name? What's their spouse's name? When do they work? When do they come home? You know, what are they like? So if this stuff starts to go sideways, instead of telling them it could go sideways, hey, it's going sideways right now. Let's work together to protect our neighborhood. You need to be part of your neighborhood, part of your community. Whether it's a rural one or an urban dense one, doesn't matter. You need to know as many people's names as possible. You need to be trained in self-defense, and you need to be armed. In spite of what I said about the fact that you could get into a situation where if you defend yourself, you could be prosecuted, there's a point at which that goes out the window. When you legitimately feel that your life or the life of a loved one is being threatened and lethal force is the only alternative, the time to use it is two and a half seconds ago. But you can't go back two and a half seconds, so the time is now. I pray to God, honestly, I pray to God that there never comes a time where I ever am required to use violence of any kind on any other human being ever again. And I mean any violence. I don't want to hit anybody. I don't want to put anybody to the ground. I don't want to throw a chokehold on anybody. I damn sure don't want to stab somebody, cut somebody, or shoot somebody. But you know what? I have the training and the knowledge to do it if I have to. And I think we should all do that. I think we should all be prepared to defend our lives and the lives of the people that depend on us. Pacifism only takes you so far. I, I, I consider myself honestly a pacifist. 99%. You step into my 1% and you've, you've extended yourself past my pacifist zone. And you're, you're going to go horizontal, whether it's from a freaking shot to the head or a shot to the head. It's your choice, depending on how big of a threat you are. I don't want to harm anybody, but I will not let myself be harmed. And I damn sure won't let my wife be harmed, my kid be harmed. There was another big change in my life. There was a time when I was the guy that would pull you through the window of your car if you set me off. That's kind of stupid. There's people that I still see that deserve it. There was a guy a couple weeks ago. What I wanted to do was I want, he, when he ended up at a red light, stopped. I wanted to get out of my truck. I wanted to walk up to his window, put my fist to his window, and in one motion grab him by the, by the throat, yank him from his car, and beat his head off the freaking uh, hood of his car. That's what I wanted to do. 
I know people are like, oh my God. Well, I'm just being honest with you. That's a, that's a human, passionate response to somebody being a complete asshole. Right? That's what I wanted to do to him. And he knew he was an asshole, but you know how assholes are. They always think you're the, you're the bigger asshole. So he was fuming at me, and I waved to him. I said, have a, and I, I, I could do, I could read my lips. I said, have a great day. Right? So, <laughs> you take the pacifist role as long as you can. But you mean me harm, you mean my family harm, or you're taking actions that lead me to believe that it's most likely that you're going to do us harm. You're going horizontal. And I wish that wasn't necessary. But guys and gals, it is. It is. And, and many of you live in places where, unless it's a burglary or something like that, it's not going to happen at your home. But it doesn't mean you won't be affected. It doesn't mean you might not be at risk. It doesn't mean that during the buildup or the aftermath, when you finally start going out again, that you might not be accosted because of the way you look. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or green. No matter what happens in a divine like this, there's somebody that doesn't like you because of who you are. So we need to be able to defend ourselves at all times. Right now, in peacetime, and certainly in time of conflict, we need to be able to defend ourselves. That has to be part of it. But overall, what you need is a plan. You need, and this is why I have to kind of leave you with this as the last thing. I don't know where you live. I don't know where you work. I don't know how many kids you have. I don't know where they go to school. I don't know what the biggest divides are where you live. I don't know what relationship you have with your neighbors. I don't know if your neighbors would be friendly to you, neutral to you, or a threat if something like this happened. I don't know anything about you individually. Okay? So in the end, you have to say to yourself, self, this is something that could happen. If it did near me, what would we do and when would we act? In other words, when would we say, okay, nobody is going to school or work? What would be the level of, of, of danger that we would have a clearly defined bur you know, border? And once that occurred, how long could we be okay? How long would we be all right? You know, if you think, well, you know, uh, there's, there's stores to the rear, so to speak, from where the danger would be, most likely. So we get, well, what if their supply chains are disrupted, et cetera? This is basic preparedness 101. If we did leave, where would we go? What would be our rules of engagement? When would we act? Who would I contact first in the neighborhood? What would I say? You just need to mentally run the scenario in your head. Not to the point where you start to fear from it or have apprehension from it. Just to the point where if it does occur, it's not like, holy shit, what do I do now? Like you've never thought about it before. See, that's the big thing I want to leave you with today. It doesn't matter if it's riots. It doesn't matter if it's a pandemic. It doesn't matter if it's a forest fire coming your way. It doesn't matter if it's a food shortage. It doesn't matter if it's a food shortage from a trucker strike. It doesn't matter if it's an all-on race war in this country. It doesn't matter if it's a war with the Chinese or the intergalactic planetoid Marshawn 5, okay? It doesn't matter. What matters is that you've mentally drilled into yourself that there's something I can do and these are the things that I would do. That's what makes you able to adapt and survive. I know this is kind of a dark show today. It's not a really great you know, lifestyle design show or anything like that. But in the end, you should come away from shows like this relatively empowered anyway. 
Because the, the, the final thought here is, yeah, this could happen, but yeah, I could get through it if it did. I don't have to be sucked into it. I don't have to be part of the vortex. I don't have to put fuel on either side of the fire. And on the inevitable part, let me tell you what it takes to make it not inevitable. It takes the, the, the thing that we spend the majority of our time trying to work on here at TSP. People learning how to think. When you're shown something and you get an emotional reaction by the media, you need to check yourself right away. You need to check your emotion, you need to start verifying things, and you need to realize that the media shows you not the 10%, not the 1%, but the half and the quarter percent of the worst on both sides. When they, when they want to, when they want to talk about this racial issue, they find some kind of nut job from the Black Panthers or some Jim Crow recycle is their example of that's what this group of people is. If we can't get past that, then this is inevitable. If we can't accept the mistakes and the crimes on all sides, It's being legitimate and having had occurred. And focus on now in the future. This is inevitable. And let me tell you something. It won't get better for anybody if it happens. It'll get worse for everyone. I prefer that it didn't. I hope today makes you think. With that, this has been Jack Spirico helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolutionary.